0: Hello, Trash Future fans. Just as an FYI, this week's free episode is out on the Patreon already. It'll be out on Wednesday this week on the main feed. However, in the interim, please enjoy this unlocked Britanology. And just bear in mind that if you want more Britnology, you get one episode per month on the five dollar tier, along with all the other bonus content. And for those extreme heads out there, you can actually get a second Britanology per month on the ten dollar tier, along with our Q and A and special intimate access to the Trash Shooter cast. Thanks for listening, and hope you enjoy.
1: Hello, and welcome to yet another episode of Britinology, episode four, I do believe. It is, in fact, number four. Yeah, an an odyssey into uh, the minds of the British people and the things which drive them to ever greater success in the war on being normal. Um, This week, uh, as ever, I'm joined by my loyal co host, Nate (laughs) Bethay.
0: Hello, it's wonderful to be back. We're having a banner week in Britain. Normal things are happening, uh, but some of them, I feel, are informed by a deep psychosis for everyone over, let's say, the age of 55 in Britain who thinks they personally fought in World War Two, even though to be a World War Two veteran at this point, you probably got to be in your 90s. Yeah. I mean, they've inhaled
1: enough leaded petrol fumes in their childhood that they really believe they fought in World War Two. And in a way, that's all that matters.
0: So we're going to talk and Milo's going to lead this, but we're going to talk about a particularly cursed decade in the history of the United Kingdom, which is the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, if you know anything about the history of the 1970s in the world, you have two big problems. You've got the oil crisis in 1973 and the 1979. Uh, you also have the British currency was devalued in the late 60s uh, and inflation started to run rampant when the Bretton Woods system was introduced, uh, basically when countries went off the gold standard. Now, this is not a gold standard podcast. However, Britain- Wait, had, what? It's <laughs> particularly- Cursed responses to inflation and to the oil crises, and by the this was marked by the Winter of Discontent, a six-week period of industrial action in the late seventies that everyone is convinced was ten times worse than it was, and that they all personally lived through, even though they probably did not. Mm. Milo, you told me once that your parents both will never vote Labour because of the Winter of Discontent, because Basically, it's so yeah. ingrained and. Uh, People are convinced that it's bodies part were part of what radicalized the boomers. Yeah. 100%. People are convinced that bodies were piling up in the streets where there was a gravedigger strike in like Merseyside that lasted for two weeks. Uh, but everyone's convinced that bodies were piling up in the street around the entire country, which is not in fact the case. So no, to that talk was about, just because of the craze. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because in
1: those days you could do a murder without a fucking political correctness
0: brigade saying you can't concrete a body into the M um, forty. See, in nineteen seventy uh, you had the initial episodes of Monty Python. By 1979, you had Dave Courtney in his sword fight in a Chinese restaurant. Exactly, it was a very powerful decade in the early <laughs> 70s. Like, honestly,
1: like you know, uh, early Hong Kong cinema has nothing on the life of Dave Courtney.
0: Exactly. In the early 70s, you have the three-day work week, Frapturing which
1: was like a hidden geezer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you have the three-day work week, which is a response to the oil crisis and uh, the need to save electricity, in which. Businesses around the country switched to a three-day work week. This is not a lie. This absolutely absolutely happened. Uh, You have a very, yeah, very deeply cursed period of what you might call just incredible decay and general malaise that Mm. then led in May 1979 to the election of Margaret Thatcher And the rest is history. Everything got worse, but some people got richer. Everything became extremely good after that point. Um, Uh, And so to talk about, we're not going to talk about the history of the 1970s much more than what I've just summarized, because I feel like uh, there is one very important point, which is that uh, under a labor government, they started cutting the social safety net and cutting government spending in anticipation of an IMF bailout that they wound up not needing because they had done the figures wrong. This is not made up. Uh, Awesome. So basically, the 1970s, in common memory in the United Kingdom, sucked. Uh, My mom considered moving back to the United Kingdom when she uh, finished college, but she came and visited her relatives and said, this place fucking sucks. I am definitely not staying here. Uh, And we're going to talk about the cultural importance of a couple of things, one being dad's army, the other being Jimmy Savile. So Milo can take yeah. it away.
1: That's going to so I'm I'm tentatively calling this uh that 70s episode because
0: <laughs> I feel like uh yeah what well, what we're going to
1: do is we're going to try and uh explain but like something about Britain through the the kind of the cultural mores and more than that the personalities that emerged from the 1970s because I think that uh, a lot of people have a lot of fascination with like the peculiarities of like British cultural affects and indeed the celebrities that the 70s spawned, and it's worth, it's worth exploring, right? Um, I think for me the most important thing that you can possibly understand about Britain in the 1970s is that you could buy seven pints of beer in a paint tin. And once you know that, I feel like everything else makes a lot more sense.
0: I one time, out of, out of curiosity, watched a video of... British advertisements from the 1970s that was made into a YouTube compilation. And the best way I can describe it was... Boy,
1: are you drunk driving? Go a bit slower, mate. a s-
0: single one was about drunk driving. And it was just <laughs> drunk driving in Scotland, drunk driving in the North, drunk driving in the <laughs> England. In the Midlands, you learned all these accents of that, like... <laughs> oh, I've got to get home from the pub somehow. I'm a bit pissed. Go oh, a bit slower, mate. Don't crash your fucking car. <laughs> <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> yeah. taking it away. Sharon, I'm drunk. <laughs> I've <laughs> got a natural Metro, Sharon. <laughs> Sharon. Sharon, you got
1: to buy the cup fourth Cortina, Sharon. <laughs> I need to sober up, Sharon. I've got to have a bat.
0: <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, I mean, so I I I feel like it, at the end of the... um. You had a you had a prime minister who went slower, slowly more insane, and was convinced that MI five was trying to overthrow him. Turned out he was right. This yeah. is Harold Wilson in his uh, second premiership. You had a, a prime minister, a Tory prime minister, who was elected, and it was it strongly, strongly suggested that uh, he had some, um, let's say upper-class English problems, a.k.a. noncing. Mm. Uh That hasn't ever been confirmed, but there there have been a significant number of rumors about Ted Heath. Uh, they didn't have the VAR technology then, so there not, could be yeah. no
1: VAR decision.
0: Um, you had a, uh, a, a prime minister who... Was famously on at a, like some kind of I think a Commonwealth conference in like somewhere in the West Indies during shit getting really really bad in the nineteen seventies, and he came back basically sunburned as fuck. Cause no British man of a certain age will ever wear sunscreen. Um right. and uh and basically, for, for, which which British c- don't do blackface, we do red face exactly. That's that's why every British guy you meet abroad has no sunglasses and no sunscreen. But long story short, you went from the, the sort of white hot heat of technology uh proposed by uh. Harold Wilson in the 1960s, too. By 1979, people were like, oh, yeah, Britain's going to get downgraded to a developing country status if this shit continues <laughs> on. So a lot of things happened. It was weird and bad. But mo- I, I think Milo's point is really trenchant here. It's the decade that radicalized the boomers. And we are now paying the price and will until all of them are gone. Uh,
1: yeah, there's like there's nothing that can be done with that generation, honestly. Um, so uh, another another quick hit before we really get into the meat of the 1970s. Um is uh you need to understand something from 2011, uh, ye oldie, ye oldie, 2011 when Pretty Patel was like bring back, bring back hanging. We all remember 2011. Tayo Kruz was in the charts. Um, 2011. So in 2011, uh, the Metropolitan Police uh, launched this thing they called Operation U Tree, um, which is basically uh may as well have been called Operation Catch the 1970s Nonces. and uh, it's a really It's a really weird bit of police history in the UK because they basically uncovered a lot of, like really shocking just like child abuse that had been going on amongst like really famous people who've been like famous for a long time and are at kind of like kind of very establishment levels in like the british media class but they also arrested a fuckload of people who literally did absolutely nothing it's a really weird like like half the people they arrested were like holy shit these guys were like mega nonces who were like at the highest levels of british society and then half the other people they arrested it was like there was literally no evidence to implicate this person at all, so it's got like a really weird, like mixed bag kind of history. Like, there's been like a lot of controversies about it, but essentially, they kind of they started pulling at the
0: thread of British nonces, and uh, they found out how deep the rabbit hole went. There were two really big ones uh, that, I, that come to mind immediately. The, the The one you may not have heard of is a guy named Cyril Smith. He was a Liberal MP for the Liberal Party before they became the SDP/LP, and then now the Liberal Democrats. It was then later, if I'm not mistaken, a, a Liberal. Lord yes before they invented the swin zone yeah exactly before before skills wallets and massacring squirrels there was cyril mm-hmm. smith who was like 550 pounds i might be exaggerating but not that much he literally weighed like 400 pounds he was a, a beast of a man he was huge he was a thick boy he'd tear you to shreds he was an mp from rochdale which the is joe rogan nonce podcast christ rochdale is what like kind of nearest to liverpool isn't it like it's, it's somewhere in, it's in the north yeah it's it's deeply north
1: don't uh, ask me a southern man where places in the north are. anyway
0: he he was famous for basically going on grand tours of different like wayward boys homes in his constituency and just like abusing children and this was all known to everyone however much like the next person i will bring up uh this was known to everyone and then only became public once he was already dead similarly the famous tv show host of a show called Jimmy'll Fix It, Jimmy mm. Savile, who looks like off brand Rod Stewart with a just deeply evil grin. And if you ever see videos of him, for some reason, he's often dressed for what looks like a sex safari. Okay, I mean, I think I think we're being a little bit unfair to Rod Stewart there. Uh,
1: Jimmy Savile looks a little bit like the uh, the preserved corpse of Jeremy Bentham, like imagine it like a sort of accursed zombie Benjamin Franklin, and that's kind of in a tracksuit. You
0: know, Phil Spector, the producer, like with like the weird pageboy haircut that mm. he he kept wearing till he was like seventy years old. That was Jimmy Savile, but he also, well, Milo, you know the story better than I do. Let's just say. No one who knew Jimmy Savile or who was involved with Jim or Jim will fix it or any of his other productions was surprised when this came out.
1: Yeah. Cause right. What you've got to understand about Jim, Jimmy Savile is that Jimmy Savile almost lived his life. He is like the British Michael Jackson. In the sense that he lived his life as if wearing a big sign that said, I am a pedophile. And then there are just people going like, eh, this guy can't be a pedophile. What, what? Yeah, he's wearing the sign that says, I'm a pedophile. But would a pedophile do that? You know, if you had something to hide, the last thing you would do would be to do exactly what a pedophile would do in every single situation.
0: I feel like one of the reasons why I, it's 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 dumb bullshit, but one of the reasons why there is so much traction for The constant, constant allegations about grooming gangs and stuff in the United Kingdom is that there is form for this in terms of authorities just choosing to ignore like systemic scale child abuse in the UK. And it's happened a lot in the history of this country. And the most recent case was obviously like when it was revealed that a guy who had basically gotten every kind of fucking honor you could get from the British government, military, academic establishment, whatever the fuck, had been abusing children for 40 years.
1: Yeah, it's all it's all very normal stuff. It you know, it just <laughs> like I think the weird thing though about Savile is that when when all the stuff about him came out, people were shocked, but they were only shocked at like the extent of it. Like I didn't know anyone who was like, "Oh, like, what a surprise. Like, they're kind of, like, generally speaking, even amongst the wider general public, like, Jimmy Savile was considered to be, like, sun it up with that guy. Like, you couldn't look... I mean, like, Google... We'll give you a moment. Google a picture of Jimmy Savile right now and tell me that that's not a man who looks like a nonce because <laughs> it's impossible. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. So the thing that made Jimmy Savile really famous was he had a TV show called Jim Will Fix It, which you alluded to earlier, which is a television show on which the guests were primarily children. (laughs) Yup. And he would make their wishes come true. Um, I'm now going to read a section from the show's Wikipedia page and, uh, you know, just, just, just react however you feel. The show was hosted by Savile, who would fix it for the wishes of several viewers, brackets usually children, to come true each week. The producer throughout the show's run was Roger Audish, always referred to by Savile as Dr. Magic. The standard format was that the viewer's letter, which described their wish, would be shown on the screen and read out loud, initially by Savile, but in later series by the viewer himself as a voiceover in the studio. Savile would then introduce The Fix, which would either have been pre-filmed on location or take place live in the studio. At the end, the viewer would join Savile to be congratulated and presented with a large medal with the words, Jim fixed it for me engraved on it. Occasionally, other people featured in The Fix It. Actors from well-known series, for example. I found out that Muhammad Ali had a cameo role on this, which is kind of an amusing tidbit. Um, Anyway, Savile himself played no part in the filming or recording of The Fix It, unless specifically requested as part of the letter rider's wish. Some children apparently thought that Savile's first name was Jimmel, so some letters shown on the program started with "Dear Jimmel." Um, my favorite detail is this part: early series saw Savile distributing medals from a magic chair, which concealed the medals in a variety of compartments. Um, and he would like often have like the children like sat on his lap and stuff. And he, he was quite often like wearing a like a full tracksuit. <laughs> he was basically he he was he was like an off an off looking dude.
0: It was weird, yeah. It's one of those things where, how to describe it? Imagine, imagine Mr. Rogers, but instead of dressing like conservative grandpa, he dresses like what a guy in the nineteen seventies who's way too old to be dressing this way thinks someone in a disco would wear, mm. and is constantly involved with I don't know, like a kind of creepy showmanship that you can't hide the creepiness. Even in the like stage managed and produced part. Of course, there is the sort of, you know, you, you look at it differently now because you yeah. know the story. But what you have to realize, above all else, Charles Dickens' voice, what you have to realize is a significant amount as the series went on of the children requesting that Jim will fix things were sick. They were ill. There, there was mm. stuff going on with kids who were like, were in hospital. That becomes very important later on in the story.
1: Yeah, we'll get to that. So a little bit about Savile himself. So Savile's from Yorkshire, um, and uh, he basically started out as like a A Sort of local DJ he is apparently credited with being the first person to invent using two turntables as a DJ So there you go if you're a DJ you do owe something to Jimmy Savile And so uh, apparently he was briefly a professional wrestler Which is one of those facts that just raises more questions than it answers Um, And he was was like a mega like fitness freak he was like into like running marathons all the time and shit Um, So he basically like kind of worked his way up through DJing and he, he hosted top of the pops Uh, which was like a show they used to have uh, on tv in britain which i think got canceled in like the mid-2000s uh where they would just play they would have like top 40 artists come and like play their songs like live they were lip-syncing
0: but like yeah Yeah, yeah, yeah. if you know bands from the era you know you'll see like live performances of people from um yeah from places like like i've seen you know top of the pops for like bands all the way up until the early 2000s was the thing but it was a huge thing in the 80s and 90s for sure
1: yeah, I have a vivid memory, of, like when I was a teenager, of uh,
0: Eminem performing Toy Soldiers on there. So that tells you how late it was. Yeah. We're talking
1: like at least 2006, 2007.
0: I remember seeing Blur on Top of the Pops uh, in a recap, because famously they didn't like the fact that they had to lip sync, so they just all took ecstasy. And so if you watch them, like they aren't lip syncing, and their eyes are wider than fuck. So it's a normal British TV show. Awesome. Yeah, just just
1: having a fucking a, a regular day. Yeah. Um, uh, and so now, now we get to this important part, right? So during his lifetime, Savile was known for fundraising and supporting charities and hospitals, in particular Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Aylesbury, Leeds General Infirmary, and Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire. Broadmoor Hospital is a uh, a secure mental hospital uh, for uh, people who have committed crimes but are deemed to be like unfit to stand trial or to be better off, basically, in a mental institution than in a uh, prison. I don't know if there are any inmates at Broadmoor who aren't convicted of crimes. I'm not sure on that, but it's that's what it's... Certainly in, like, the British imagination, that is, like, the psychiatric prison. Um, and so, like, a lot of, like, really infamous, like, serial killers and stuff, they're all kind of, like, locked up there. Um, and uh, so, anyway, as a result of all this charity work, he was given, like, a load of honours, and he became quite matey with <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. Um, yet another famous figure from the 1970s. Weird how that happens. Uh, yes, and... Um, she died, I think, before the Savile thing came out, or slightly after. Yeah, was there? A, yeah, I think she died in 2013, and I think Savile died in maybe 2011. 2011. I think. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of circa the same sort of time. Um. Anyway, so yeah, but it, basically, it turns out that this whole time he was using all of this charity work as a way to pursue his passion for noncing and like. You know, I don't really want to like rank severity of sex crimes, but like Jimmy Savile's are like particularly gross and abhorrent.
0: For, for Americans who may not be familiar with the slang, why are you listening to Trash Future if you aren't familiar with British slang at this point? I will just say what Milo is saying is that Jimmy Savile used his position to gain access to mentally or physically unwell children so he could sexually abuse them.
1: Yeah. And he was doing this like in hospitals and like care homes and kind of, and the whole thing is like extremely grim. Yeah. um, And I think that was. That was like the extent to which it was shocking. I think if it had been like him trying it on with some underage girls in his dressing room or something, I don't think people would have been surprised at all.
0: That's the thing that John Peel, it turned out after he died, the the BBC DJ had done. He was famous for like being creepy with teenage girls. But John Peel's legacy hasn't quite been, it hasn't been like enshrined in the British consciousness as like this guy was a fucking creep because Jimmy Saviles was so much worse.
1: Yeah, and also it's important to know uh, what Jimmy Savile was like, right? Which kind of, it's so easy to like imagine this man as a huge creep because he just acted like a huge creep all the time. Um, so here's another passage from his Wikipedia. Savile was frequently spoofed for his dress sense, which usually featured a tracksuit or shell suit and gold jewelry. A range of licensed fancy dress costumes were released with his consent in 2009. <laughs> Damn, imagine having 10,000 of those to sell and then 2011 happens.
0: Yikes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Savile was often pictured holding a cigar. Uh, yeah, he's always smoking a cigar. He claimed to have started smoking cigars at the age of seven, saying my dad gave me a drag on one at Christmas, thinking it would put me off them forever, but it had the opposite effect. I think here we just need the drop of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about stogies. <laughs> my wife's father, he likes a stogie. Now no one can say to me anything about my stogie. I smoke a stogie whenever I want. Why don't you smoke a stogie? Are you gay or something? <laughs>
0: Yeah, um, I mean, well, I mean, letting a seven year old smoke a cigar is an energy, I suppose.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's just something about just like imagining just like Yorkshire in the 1940s of just like Jimmy Savile's father in a flat cap holding a whippet, just like giving him a puff on a cigar.
0: Well, what is the one of the things in his background was he was a Bevan boy, which, if I'm not mistaken, is like. Children who were working for the war effort, kind of thing. Is that something to that effect? I'm uh, something like that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what it involved, but yeah, so, I mean, like his his life trajectory is. I mean, he was a miner as a child, like a, like a, as a young man, like 14 years old. Um, he participated in the war effort to some extent. So, like, and he... miners continued to be a passion of his. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. Basically, he he had the sort of life trajectory of someone who you know came from a like a famously not metropolitan part of the country and became like this cultural icon but as you said hiding nowhere beneath the surface was yeah the savile problem and uh i mean so we've we've kind of we've tackled the
1: heavy shit with jimmy savile now i now have some some light because something something that you really can't get over with jimmy savile is just like how weird he is as a like just yeah I'm just going to read it. Savile was a member of Mensa and the Institute of Advanced Motorists and drove a Rolls- royce He was made a life member of the British Gypsy Council in 1975, becoming the first outsider to be made a member. He was the chieftain of the Lock Arbor Highland Games for many years and owned a house in Glencoe. His appearance on the final edition of Top of the Pops in 2006, okay, well, that's it um, was pre-recorded because it clashed with the Highland Games. My man, my man tossing a caber. so it is, man.
0: <laughs> Honorary what a, like,
1: Scott, honorary traveler. What a, what a just diverse range of interests this man had. Um, uh, yeah, so then it's also about so through his support of charity, Savile became a friend of Margaret Thatcher who in 1981 described his work as marvelous. It has been reported that Savile spent 11 consecutive New Year's Eves at Checkers with Thatcher and her family. Do you know what this fucking means? This means that Mark, Mark Thatcher. Thatcher grew up yep. around Jimmy Savile. Normal. Now then, now then, now then want to become the ruler of, a, of an equatorial African state. <laughs> Fucking hell. Okay, well. This is another important thing to know about Jimmy Savile is he was known for all these like weird catchphrases such as now, then, now, then,
0: now, then, and uh, the band was sure, what what Yeah, his accent is, is something else. I mean, it's not the strongest, but it's, it's there. Yeah, it's a yeah, and but, but there was a terrible band in the seventies called Shawadi Waddy. For some
1: reason, they were just always on. Jim will fix it. Milo and-
0: showed me a video of them, and I, I strongly recommend that you take a look at it because ultimately, what stands out to me is everyone is wearing a different color pastel leisure suit. It's just or not even pastel. They basically represent the entirety of the fucking color spectrum in horrible seventies suits in ways that I've only seen people wear in the United States as like parodies of the 1970s but this is the real mm. thing and they play music that sounds like, like a shit tier version of the Bay City Rollers like it's just not good
1: yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Bay City Rollers if they were being done by Glee. It's kind of got a very weird, yeah. It's lots of like d- doo wopping and like it, it's very it's very old-fashioned by the standards of the 1970s. Strangely,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, because when this stuff was being filmed, it was the late 70s. So I mean, it's just it's weird. It it, it seems a little it's almost
1: like quite 50s in its vibe.
0: Yeah, I, I would say I would say when you watch this stuff, British TV now is different than American. It's a little bit weird, but like technically speaking outfits, attitudes, et cetera. It's not that it's not it's, it's it has more in common with American TV than it does. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh the like differences I suppose. But you look at this stuff, it's it looks like something not out of a different time but out of a parallel universe
1: yeah yeah it looks it looks kind of like a sketch or something like from some like incredibly dark sketch show just this guy in a tracksuit introducing a band who are all wearing shirts that are somehow like twice the size of their entire body
0: i mean there's one that you showed me where jimmy savile does the whole episode wearing a completely open shirt like just like chest out like he's in like the hungry like the wolf video i mean (laughs) it's weird weird shit I'm hungry like the wolf. <laughs> uh,
1: yes. I mean, uh, we're not saying anything about the members of Duran Duran. Um, uh, so now we get to my favorite part of Jimmy Savile, which is the, all the all of the honors that he received, which were revoked after his death, some of which are kind of incredible. So uh, in the 70s, he was given an honorary Green Beret by the Royal Marines. Um, so for American listeners, the reason why American special forces are called green berets is because they came out of the world war two commandos, the Royal Marines, which were kind of what came out of our uh, special forces of the day also are called Royal Marines commandos. And they also wear green berets. So getting a green beret in the Royal Marines is like a very serious thing. And you have to do all this kind of like fucked up shit to get it. Their training lasts like almost two years. Um, And uh, Jimmy Savile completed the commando speed march, which is like infamously the hardest thing on that. You have to basically like walk 30 miles with like a load of shit in an incredibly short amount of time. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, And uh, he was buried with his green beret, like fucking clutching it in the coffin. And uh, they approached the Royal Marines for comment about whether they were able to re- rescind the green beret, and they were like, "It's very embarrassing, but actually, we're not legally allowed to rescind the green beret." But <laughs> um, so they've just like taken him off the list. So there it is. He's been expunged from the records, but he does still legally, uh, you know, have there his is still a green, green beret, beret in his coffin. Yeah, there is. Still that. So if anyone wants a green beret, um, uh, he had his honorary law doctorate from the University of Leeds rescinded. Uh, he also had an honorary doctorate from the University of Bedfordshire rescinded, which is like, come on, lads. Um, he also had, uh, he, yeah, he was a freeman of the borough of Scarborough, also had that removed in 2012. Um, there's something funny to me about this to an extent where, like, all these people were like happy to give this, like, incredibly creepy dude all of these honors. And then, like, are oh, they're like,
0: well, well, you're no longer welcome in Scarborough. And it's like, <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> To me also, I think it speaks to the extent to which he was such a fixture of sort of like UK charity stuff that he was just, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an analog in the United States and I'm coming up blank, but like you think of the sort of like, like dark Regis Philbin kind of thing. Like he was somebody that was famous for being a TV personality, but also like whatever the charity thing involved was, like he was there, he was... He was the spokesman. Mm. He was a person who like was, he was constantly, he was basically permanently known for his philanthropy. Yeah. And the best way to describe it is he's like Jared, Subway Jared did a Jimmy Savile speed run.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, so but the thing is that with Jimmy Savile is that like uh this like damnatio memoriae of him has gone like extremely far and it's like it's not unjustified but it's just it's kind of interesting the way in which to the extent where like he doesn't have a headstone his family had it removed when this came out so he's just in like an unmarked grave like this is like the level of like no one wants anything to do with this guy that we're talking about um do you want to hear the absolute funniest removal of an honor because yes. The way that they comment, it's just beautiful. Savile was honored with a papal knighthood by being made a knight commander of the Pontifical Equestrian Order of St. Gregory the Great by Pope John Paul in 1990. After the scandal broke, the Catholic Church in England and Wales asked the Holy See to consider stripping Savile of the honor. In October 2012, Father Federico Lombardi told BBC News, The Holy See firmly condemns the horrible crimes of sexual abuse of minors, and in light of recent information, this honour should not have been bestowed, as there does not exist any permanent official list of persons who have received papal honours in the past. It's not possible to strike anyone off a list that does not exist. The names of recipients of papal honours do not appear in the pontifical yearbook, and the honour expires with the death of the individual. So, basically, the Catholic Church said that Jimmy Savile was too much of a nonce (laughs) for their
0: liking. (sighs)
1: Yeah. It's sort of amazing to me that the Catholic Church made that step without without feeling the need to put in any sort of caveat. Well, I mean... They were just like, we can't believe that a guy that was affiliated
0: with the Catholic Church... Their PR machine has gotten a lot of practice in this regard. So, I mean, I guess they figured better to not comment. Yeah. I mean, oh boy. Um,
1: So, yeah, that's Jimmy Savile. I feel like that's kind of like the gross part of the episode. I th- I think, though, what is... Right. What's interesting about Savile and what he says about the 1970s is that a lot of other TV personalities from the 1970s were like as weird as Jimmy Savile. Yes. And some of them were pedophiles and some of them weren't. And it's quite unlike without knowing, it's quite hard. It's, it's like developing the theory of the British nonce is quite difficult because like there are a lot of people who like you think they must be, but they're totally not. And yeah, it's a very like so let's talk about some more. British TV. So I thought that like a good foundational place to start was Dad's Army. Uh, Nate, I know, you've, I know you've seen some Dad's Army. Would I you have. like to explain it to American listeners?
0: Dad's Army is a nineteen early 1970s TV sitcom basically about a bunch of old men in World War II who have been drafted to serve in the Territorial Army or the Home Guard. Basically, yeah. their role is to defend Britain in the event of – a Nazi takeover of Britain or an attack on britain they they are they are the 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 home protection force if you will, and uh they're all old and bumbling, except for randomly they have some young people who are in their their unit as well mm-hmm. who have just been assigned to serve in this unit um and it basically just follows their, the, the, the big dynamic is that the, their, their company commander is served in the army in World War I, but wasn't in combat. And this is just like weird, self-important buffoon. Their color sergeant is a, was actually an officer in World War I as well, and was decorated for actions in combat, but constantly has to be deferential to this complete idiot that's in charge of him and the rest of the formation.
1: Uh basically, the whole thing is a metaphor for the entirety of Britain and the way that it works
0: exactly and the thing I would say is that um Dad's army started in the early seventies and ran ran i think like my said into the early eighties. But the thing about it is is it's in a way i think instrumental in explaining how everything that Britain does or does not do and does or does not succeed in is always explained through the lens of World War II, even though we're getting to the point where there are very few people left alive who served in the armed forces in World War II. Yeah. It is absolutely foundational to a certain generation of British people, primarily the boomers.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting about Dad's Army is that it's very much intended as a parody of the absurdity of the kind of people who like think they fought in World War II but didn't, even as early as the 1970s like it is kind of it's a parody of like the absurdity of like the concept of you know the home guard and we're all in the army sort of thing when they're just like not at all that this kind of rabble of people with like not enough not enough weapons who have absolutely no concept of what would happen if the Germans actually invaded which is why I linked you to that particular episode which is where um, basically a detachment of German uh, U-boat <laughs> uh, like some U-boat officers and seamen are picked up by British fishermen after their U-boat sinks and they're brought to the coastal town where this unit of the Home Guard is based and the Home Guard has to take them prisoner but the Home Guard is so incompetent that they end up being taken prisoner by the German prisoners of war who manage to, by some chicanery, turn their own weapons on them and it only the whole thing only gets kind of undone when the Germans are frog marching them down um, down to the port to put them on a boat to Germany and then like some actual regular soldiers show up and are like, what the fuck is going on? Um, but throughout this whole thing, like, the captain mannering, the company commander, is constantly like, I've got this situation under control, we'll, we'll simply, we'll, t- we'll turn tables on the Jerry, when, when, at this precise point, um, yeah, and then the only way the tables get turned on them, is by just like, confusion, and things going wrong, and this is sort of like, the recurring idea of this is just like, they only, they only succeed by just getting lucky, at the last moment, which is such a perfect, kind of laser point fucking satire of exactly what happened with these people that it's hard to do better almost.
0: I would say that Dad's Army as a show is similar to the American TV show MASH, but MASH used the Korean War as a a lens to talk about the war in Vietnam. Mm. And I think there are boomers and Gen Xers who are, were really, really big fans of MASH back in the olden mm. days. But I feel like there is less of a fixation on... For one, there's, there's not a fixation on talking about the war in Korea. In fact, the Korean War is probably the least talked about of modern American wars. Um, but also, I think that, like, the, the way in which this... The short of,
1: review of the Korean War.
0: This, 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 was the, this was such a generational moment, it seems, with regard to, to how people see themselves and see mm. what happened in Britain in World War II as well.
1: Yeah, because it's it's become like it's it's sort of not remembered as a parody in the same way. It's kind of become remembered as this sort of like jolly hockey stick spirit of the British home guard who would have resisted the Hitler to the end and it's like
0: that's not what the show is about. The show is about how fucking stupid they are. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, people don't it was didn't run anywhere near as long obviously, but people don't you know reinterpret World War 1 because of the fourth season of Blackadder being about World War 1. No. It just to maybe it informs people's mental, you know, visual perception of what they think the war was like, but the whole thing is obviously a huge farce. Like that's, that's the point. Uh, it certainly doesn't make people turn around and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm re-envisioning this patriotic success mm. because of, you know, Captain Blackadder and Private Baldrick and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 But Dad's army weirdly has kind of become the thing that people, I don't know, they, that they think of that and Dunkirk and the Blitz, but like, Dunkirk was nearly a disaster that was saved by, as Milo has famously pointed out, blokes who fish. And the blitz was a fucking massacre. So it's weird. Yeah, and it's it's funny
1: how people, that people remember these events in this kind of, like, weird, like, sort of mysterious mists of time way, like, oh, well, you know, in the Blitz, in the Blitz, everyone did as
0: they were told, and it's like, no, they fucking didn't. No, they didn't. The government tried to put people in really insufficient bomb shelters or have them shelter at home, and it was through, like, massive unrest with people basically forcing the government to allow them to take shelter in the tube, uh, because that was safer than the shit the government had built, um... The extent to which, yeah, it's a misremembering, but I feel like what's important in bringing this up is that maybe if you're online, you'll perceive this, but certainly I feel like unless you live here, it's hard to understand how much in British media and popular culture, the notion of the blitz spirit and the Dunkirk spirit get invoked, even though, as we said before, there are very, very few people left alive who have any real adult memory of that. My grandmother is still alive. She's in her late 80s. She was a child in the Norwich Blitz, which was in 1941 I think or 42. Mm. The London Blitz was primarily in the, in 1940. 1940, yeah. So like you think about like like I said my grandmother is almost 90. Yeah, she's still alive. She was 6 years old in the Norwich Blitz.
1: Yeah, my grandmother's ninety-two, and she remembers the Blitz pretty well. She would like sleep in the tube station and stuff, and then eventually she got evacuated to the countryside, uh, which the countryside then was Luton. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Yikes! Um,
1: uh, yeah, it is, it's that's that's a whole interesting story with evacuation and like the way it went very differently for, to different people. Lots of child abuse is involved in that. I was well. going to say,
0: I mean, the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe" is basically, if you're familiar with that story, the whole point is there are children who've been evacuated to the countryside. Yeah, because children just got placed in rural villages. Yeah. I mean, my
1: grandma got really lucky because she had like fucking eight siblings and they lived in a fucking tenement house in a room in Islington. And she got evacuated to some like wealthy, like practically like landed gentry family in Luton. So she had like a great time. But I think a lot of people got sent to like some fucking interesting some
0: places. Yeah. And so, yeah. so weirdly, this, this huge generational trauma in which the government, the country was basically face, facing hostile occupation A significant chunk of people in the country were actually pretty pro-Nazi. And instead, it's gotten misremembered, deliberately misremembered or re-remembered as this grand old thing that brought everyone together, which, I mean yeah we are now dealing with the weird byproducts of that
1: yeah the boomers who were raised by the ptsd generation um and also inhaled a lot of leaded petrol fumes they did in fact um but yeah in conclusion about dad's army actually a good show and it's like very much like quite a good satire of a certain kind of british worldview that like you know that your sort of boomer dad is just gonna like solve hitler on his own um and so we would definitely recommend that if you've not seen it it's worth checking i think there's like lots of old episodes on youtube yeah um, it's, it's like genuinely a well-made show That's like actually funny
0: And famously the song in the beginning Is not a real World War II patriotic song but it's so cloying and bad that you could be fooled into thinking that it is actually real. Yeah. Yeah. It was
1: made, especially because it's like the, the lyrics to which are, who do you think you're kidding? Mr. Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. A, a, a believable British world war two song along with uh, was it? I, I'm trying to work out now. If the, uh, if the Hitler has only got one ball song was actually a real <laughs> world war two song. If that's a later interpolation, but that is a great, uh, yeah. Uh, Hitler has only got one ball. Uh, uh, Himmler has
0: got something similar and poor goebbels has no balls at all i will only say though that when you think about two world wars and one world cup the way that this stuff gets reframed into popular culture like it is definitely a thing people are still fucking dealing with uh we're constantly being reminded of it here in this country another thing we're constantly being reminded of is, is weird cultural artifacts of things that uh that you you don't necessarily know the history of, like for example, both in the film Joker, which came out last year, and also if you've ever gone to a sporting event ever in America, you'll hear a song called Rock and Roll Part Two by a British artist named Gary Glitter.
1: Ah yes, now we're back into nonce territory again. Weird how that happens. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't want to talk about Gary Glitter so much because he's kind of more boring because he kind of he he got into like nonce territory a bit later in life. Uh but basically he was like a big glam rock star of the seventies and eighties. Very famous, dressed in the way that glam rock stars do, i.e. mad. Um, and then he kind of in the late 2000s... Actually, no, as in the, as early as the late 90s, he got in trouble in the UK for child pornography, and then he got in trouble for basically underage prostitution stuff in Vietnam. Yeah, he, went was, to jail he was prison in Vietnam, yeah, for a while. Uh, yeah, and then he came back to Britain, and he got in trouble again for something also kind of related. So, uh, yeah, he is a... Uh, yeah, definitely VAR decision nonce, um, and, like, he was, like, a big pop star of that era um, and a guy who was just like outwardly kind of like a weird dude and so it, sort of like a there's kind of a theme developing yeah, here yeah, if yeah. we're to pull something out um, so to like to take us back to kind of like uh, t- innocuous 1970s stuff um, we've got um, Morecambe and Wise which was that the first time you'd seen Morecambe was, and Wise yeah
0: do you have a reaction from Morecambe and Wise I mean it just seemed like weird 70s vaudeville, I guess. I mean, like, in a way that... Yeah. I mean, I realize now from watching these things that you've sent me, all the stuff that that Mitchell and Webb look were parodying. Right. Because some of that stuff, I mean, okay, it's objectively like absurd and funny in that regard, if you watch it as an outsider. But then when you start to see how much of this is based on what TV was actually like in the 70s, then you're like, man, this was all shit. This was really bad. Yeah, it's not. They're like still working it out as a format,
1: and I mean, and Morecambe and Wise is some of the best of it. I mean, like Morecambe and Wise again is one of those shows that's like much beloved. Like they still show it at Christmas time, and like it's a whole like. And those guys became like real like elder statesmen of British television. But I think your description of it as like a vaudeville act is kind of right. Like it, because a lot of British TV of that era, I would say, came out of like music hall culture from like the forties, fifties. You talk about.
0: I don't really know that much about musical stuff.
1: So music halls, um, well, I can talk about musicals and I don't know so much about music halls in the north, which I think were also a thing, but I'm not sure exactly what the tradition was there. Certainly London music halls like the Hackney Empire and the Palladium and stuff like that were uh, kind of like sort of working class entertainment, I guess, like certainly like places that my grandparents would have gone. And, uh, for what they would describe as a knees up, if you want a real, a real bit of fucking British terminology from back in the day there, um, real Cockney hours, who up Um, so they would and they were basically they were variety shows they would be hosted by like an MC who would kind of be something between just like just a host and a comedian they would sort of tell some jokes and they would do some like riffs with the audience but the acts would be like quite diverse they'd have like singers dancing acts like magic acts uh, comedy acts like there could be like a whole it was like true variety Mm -hmm. and it was just sort of purely seen as like just kind of like go and be entertained by this mixed bag of entertainment entertainment um and so it's quite old-fashioned in that way just like here enjoy these mystery meats um and that was like a huge culture thing people went as a very like it was kind of cheap and fun sort of entertainment thing for working class people before like television or sort of like mass broadcast entertainment was as much of a thing because another important thing to note is that uh british broadcasting was like exceptionally shit until like the late 1960s because there were really restrictive rules like there was only the BBC and there were very restrictive rules on what could be on the BBC. Basically everything on the BBC was like and now for an hour of crochet with 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 Doris Wilders uh, she's going to be talking about uh, different kinds of sewing that you can other things that women enjoy so please Please watch that. Later will be the remembering the empire hour. Uh, yes, thank you. That, that, that was basically the timbre of like all British broadcasting. Like they didn't have so now like they they invent they invented they uh it introduced Radio One in I think the late 1960s or maybe the early 70s um which became huge and Radio One I think is still probably one of the biggest like pop radio stations in the world and like Radio One plays like the flagship BBC radio station and it plays like top 40 music basically yeah. um but until that point like all the the only music they played on like BBC radio would be kind of you know like almost like nursery rhyme type stuff or like classical music sort of like they would not allow anything that was kind of like hip or like of that era to be played and so everyone listened to pirate radio uh and where pirate radio got its name from is they would literally do it on boats from the english channel so i it some listeners might have seen that film, The Boat That Rocked. Like that is absolutely, basically a true story. That's based on I think Radio Caroline and Radio Luxembourg, which were both like uh, really popular ships, which were just like moored in international waters.
0: Um, for, <laughs> a preview for of Things to Come.
1: Future, yeah, um, and yeah, they would they would broadcast like just kind of like. High quality, like pop and most of those DJs went on to become um like BBC radio DJs or like other kind of commercial radio DJs like people like Tony Blackburn and other like super famous uh British yeah, DJs, like they Aiden came from Day that, pirate. People like
0: that Yeah. I was mm. just thinking about I mean, it's weird to me because I only know about this because there is a huge disconnect, I think, between how shit British TV was in the seventies versus British music, a lot of stuff has endured a lot longer. Whereas yeah. like it seems to me that a lot of the stuff that was popular then TV, film-wise, aside from a few standouts, it's mostly like Boomer Nostalgia Machine. Yeah, yeah, versus yeah. it having any kind of like enduring appeal so
1: there's some there's some more common Wise stuff that really like is kind of a bit ahead of its time like the one thing I didn't uh, so that the, the sketch that I sent you uh, the the Andre Previn sketch is like one of the things that they're most known for where like Andre Previn being like one of the most celebrated composers at, at the time and they just get him on and he's like and he has to conduct them playing this song and then they're just doing it wrong but they keep blaming him and like a lot of the jokes in that are like quite clever is like they keep threatening him being like I am playing the right notes just not necessarily <laughs> Really in the right, right order, order. <laughs> um, and like the way that that was like a popular thing they would do is they would get like a really famous celebrity on who would just like play along
0: with being humiliated by them essentially it's kind of like um, like a british version of In. If, if you think about it i mean you've heard the story i've not seen it La- 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 In was yeah, the was a tv variety show in america in the 70s and famously richard nixon went on In when he was president i think oh when he was, fuck so, yeah, like, yeah i have when heard when about he's it. like suck it to me like <laughs> yeah that's R- R- richard nixon yeah the president Oh, you're playing the wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's... um, I think watching it, maybe because I don't have any cultural memory, like this is what's familiar to me. Mm. It was just, I'm struck by how incredibly old-fashioned it seems. Yeah. How much it seems like a filmed vaudeville act as opposed to there are camera cuts and stuff like that, but there's not that many of them. Mm. It feels very much like you're watching a stage show. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And those guys were like real, like live performers. Like, more and wise, they
1: were kind of known as comedians, but like they could both like tap dance. Like they were, they could both like sit, like those guys were like fucking, they could do all of it. Like the whole fucking thing. They could like dancing, whatever, like do the sketches. Like they were kind of like, properly a relic of a bygone era even then yeah. but there was that transitional phase from like live entertainment to recorded entertainment yeah, 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 yeah. Um, which they were sort of quite in the middle of I would say probably a comedy show that endures slightly better which I think is from the later 70s into the 80s is the uh, the two Ronnies with Ronnie Corbett and Ronnie Barker which was a sketch show which has a lot of kind of very very quoted sketches like the infamous there's an infamous sketch about a guy goes into a, 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 a like a hardware store and he's trying to, and he asks for four candles, and the guy gives him four candles, and he's like, no, four candles, like, andles for forks. And then the guy, and then there's just, like, it's, like, an endless series of these confusions where he asks for peas, and the guy brings him, like, garden peas, but he wants, like, letter peas to, like, screw onto the wall, and then O's, and then he asks for O's, and the guy brings him a letter O, but he actually wants a hose, and, like, this is, like, just, like, absurdist, uh, like, kind of shit. Yeah. But the, I think their most famous is probably the the mastermind sketch where, um, the guy's specialist there's a there's a bbc uh quiz show called mastermind and everyone has a specialist subject it's still on tv now you have a general knowledge round, and then a specialist subject and the guy's specialist subject is answering the question that was previously asked and it's like it's genuinely like an extremely clever sketch the like the interplay of the questions and the answers and like the i would recommend that to everyone if you go if you put into ronnie's mastermind sketch that is like
0: if i was going to recommend you one bit from the 70s from the uk which is funny to me also because i think in the united states the thing that has endured the most is probably Monty Python and that uh, i yeah. do think that it's probably less so now because it's just it's an older thing but like people mm. my age certainly like gen xers people who grew up who would have been too young even i mean they probably would have been too young to watch it if they'd grown up in britain mm. but people in the 80s and 90s in america i remember my brother my our public library you could rent vhs cassettes and i remember they had like, the entirety of all of Monty Python every season, you could rent it. And my yeah. brother was a fan. He he liked Monty Python a lot. And he, over the course of the summer, like, would just ride his bike to the library and, like, rent, like, two or three cassettes and bring mm. them home and watch them. And, like, two things I recall was that for all the memorable Monty Python sketches, so much of them are just shit, like, total shit. Oh, yeah, they were real throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. Yeah, exactly. A lot of it got broadcast. Yeah, It's incredible. And also the thing that I think was the most disconcerting, well, I mean people who know the show will know this, but like there's a laugh track that doesn't correspond to what's happening. It's just like a like they put like a record on in the studio of like recorded laughter. So like the audience laughter has no correspondence with what's going on on screen. Which awesome. Is, if you aren't expecting that as like, in my case, an 11 year old, you're like, what the fuck is going on? But it's then like also- the
1: Philip Glass of comedy, just like nothing makes any sense.
0: But also another thing too is that um, it was always interesting to me was it reveals how old this stuff is and how, how, mm. how, how long ago this was, is that if you watch Monty Python, stuff that's filmed in the soundstage looks- I'm going to say new, but it doesn't look hideously out of date. Yeah. Whereas the stuff that's filmed outdoors, it might as well be like the fucking Zapruder film from JFK's assassination. Like <laughs> it's just complete dog shit quality. And that's yeah. the thing that really, I mean, it, it makes you realize just how, I don't know, like of like a fledgling medium it was, which in America, I think people more associate with the 60s, the 50s to some extent, but like TV, most people in America didn't have TVs in the 50s. But mm. the 60s, like that's sort of like, the real kind of like fledgling medium of TV, whereas it seems like that decade, of that sort of transitional decade, happened more so here. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, I mean, you know, in the in the sixties was when people were just starting, just starting to buy a TV off the back of Dave Courtney's van. You know, that
0: was when- <laughs> well, By the by the by the end of the seventies, I mean you had stuff like I Claudius and stuff like that, like full on. Produce yeah, yeah, T V yeah. dramas and things like that. Like yeah, stuff I think in like- the seventies
1: was like a real yeah, a big, a big transitional phase in British television. It's interesting that you bring up Monty Python. I think that Monty Python is like it's a sort of uh it's a show that a lot of people in Britain like really enjoyed and it's very it's very like popular. But it doesn't it hasn't sort of endured In that kind of like cultural institution way that some of these things have, like, I think particularly for that generation, like stuff like Morecambe and Wise and uh, yeah, Two Ronnies and things like that is more kind of ingrained in a kind of cultural consciousness than Monty Python is. Whereas Monty Python was more like of a kind of certain cultural milieu. It's a thing people like. But there's um, I mean, like All Dad's Army even is a great example, because like there's a
0: started around the same time.
1: Yeah, and there's that, the, in the episode I sent you, there's the incredibly famous scene where the German officer starts getting annoyed that everyone keeps saying all these, like, insulting things about Hitler. And he says, like, I, Right, I am making a list, and then when we are all back in Germany, you will stand trial for these things which you have said. And he starts putting people's names on the list. And then uh, Pike, who's, like, the kind of, like, idiot, Private begins singing this song about how Hitler is a twerp, and then he goes, "Your name Veloso gone's the list. What is it?" And Captain Mannering says, "Don't tell him Pike." And then the German officer's like, "Pike." And this is like, I think if you like, you can almost go up to anyone in Britain over the age of like thirty and quote, "Don't tell him Pike" at them, and they will know exactly Like it is like properly like fully and deeply ingrained in the consciousness almost to the extent of like calling scandals gate like that degree of like
0: it's mad. i mean i'm just trying to think of something from the early 70s in america on tv that would still be that embedded with people like say my age or older. yeah i don't really know i mean it's it's tough to think of like yeah it's but i mean it's weird because yeah you do have that direct sort of that lens to look at and say okay well in the u.s at the same time we have a show that's about the korean war that's really like a commentary on Vietnam. And then in Britain, we have a show that's just like, oh, wasn't World War II a laugh? Yeah. <laughs> it's just weird how that's like refracted over time. You know what I mean? Mm. Like in a way that, I mean, the boomer fixation on the Vietnam War is a huge thing in America. Like that has governed so many fucking things. Even to this day, you still have some of like the, the, the echoes of that in the way war films are made or like the Rambo franchise still fucking happening and stuff like that. Mm. You know what I mean? But in Britain, you didn't have that. No. You didn't have that, and you, and the one major... Baz and Gaz didn't get to
1: go and fight in a war, so they had to imagine it, and that reflects, in some ways, the different psychoses
0: of the British and American boomer. Exactly, well, yeah, because think about that. I mean, the, old, the closest thing you have is the Falkland Islands War, which was in the 80s, so by that point, most yeah. boomers were probably too old. And it, when there was no draft. Was... It was fought by professional soldiers. And it was, it was over in, what, six weeks? I mean, it was a very, very quick thing. Yeah. Um, I think the British, didn't the British Army, I think, sent troops to the Gulf War, but also... A day, a war that lasted four days.
1: Yeah, again, professional soldiers, like yeah. not, it didn't... It
0: just wasn't a, a universal cultural phenomenon the way that the previous wars were. And in the United yeah. States, you had the draft, so like Vietnam was a much more universalized thing. And it was applied in an equal and fair way. Exactly, exactly. Which is why, why Ted Nugent and Dick Cheney and George W. Bush all served proudly in combat in Vietnam. They definitely yeah. didn't ship themselves in the draft board. That's Ted Nugent. They definitely <laughs> didn't just completely blow it off, Get like five deferments, and then when asked why he didn't serve Vietnam, Dick Cheney say, "I had better priorities." Uh, yeah, just really normal stuff. Normal stuff. Normal stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Better priorities than defending democracy, Dick. <laughs> Damn. Um, the one good thing Dick Cheney ever did is not go to Vietnam. Basically.
1: Well, exactly. And then I think the other thing you need to know about British TV from the seventies is, of course, the game shows, which are completely mad i mean one of the game shows i've included here is actually from the early 80s but it's so 1970s it's called bullseye and i think we've talked about it on trash future before but it's hosted by jim bowen who is like this kind of 1970s like comedian guy who's gotten this gig on tv hosting and is like a proper like working men's club comedian and again is like kind of like Sort of gives off a slightly a slightly odd vibe, but is like definitely like not a nonce. Like not is not he in that. It doesn't give
0: off a, a Jimmy Savile vibe at all though. That's no. Not.
1: But it's similarly in that kind of like personality milieu. And this show is just absolutely bizarre. It's like they the contestants have to play darts. And then depending on and various rounds where they score points and then they can, like, if they hit certain bits on the dartboard, they win prizes. But the prizes are all just, like, absolute dog shit. Like, the best prize you can win is, like, a lawnmower in most of <laughs> these rounds. But then at the end, there's always, like, a grand prize where they can gamble all of the prizes that they've won to have a shot at this grand prize. And this, the show was notorious for having just, like, bizarre grand prizes. Like, you've got these two guys who've come for the, from their fucking, like, council flat to play this darts game show. And then the grand prize is like, it's a speedboat! <laughs> it's like, what are these motherfuckers gonna do with a speedboat? <laughs> but yeah, this show was notorious for having speedboats as prizes. I, I don't know why, but,
0: like, just... It's a surreal thing to watch. You showed me also uh, the British Price is Right, the gen- and what, what, what surprised me about that was the host... Had that, I, I don't have a great British person to compare it to, but I'm reminded of like Vincent Price. He had that like old timey entertainer energy in a way that like that has kind of gone away in America. Like mm. even people, you know, because the, the big the big generational guy on TV. I, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe maybe going out on a limb to make a claim this broad, but I would say it's Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Carson's demeanor is way more of like he's like the the the, the, the funny like you know you, you can't bullshit me jack kind of tv guy but it's yeah. not the same as well, like johnny carson's kind of more of a chat show guy yeah, right yeah, so yeah, yeah but i mean it, w- it wasn't a variety show but he was a comedian i mean like if you think about um johnny carson's sort of like the guy that that, that was sort of his understudy who then took over his show was david letterman and yeah, yeah, you know yeah. like that it's jokes and stuff but it's not a sketch comedy show it is a talk show yeah. but like that is the more of like the when you think of people hosting uh you know any, any game show in America it kind of draws on that but like just this was a show from 1997 that you showed me yeah. it still felt very like oh I've just come in from the country oh my arm's tired like that so, kind of thing it's very so, yeah, so the training. person you're
1: referring to is Bruce Forsyth and I, I, I put in the prices right because it's kind of Forsyth that is most Forsyth and like again huge personality from the 70s who continued to be a like massive TV staple until he died quite recently a couple of years ago um, so he uh, American viewers uh, who've watched uh, the british strictly come dancing might be familiar with bruce forsyth because he hosted that for like quite a lot of seasons um he also music hall guy right this guy is like bruce forsyth can like sing dance all that shit he's but he like kind of has made his name as a tv presenter um and in the 70s they got him to host this uh game show called the generation game which was like conceived as they stole it from some Dutch format, which is just deeply cursed for a number of reasons. much oh, of things they took didn't take in the original. Yeah. Oh, the Black you get to the this shoe polish. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, um, and it's like they play all these like stupid games. They'll get like families on there to compete. And then like the prizes were like deliberately dog shit. I actually listened to this recently and they were talking about they had a discussion amongst the presenters, the, the producers about the prizes. So they were saying like it's like Saturday night, like primetime TV, and like the stuff you can win is like a toaster. And they were like, and then they said the prizes have to be shit or the show won't be entertaining enough. And it's like because the people have to do these stupid things which they will fail to do. And if like, and if they and if they're failing to win something like actually good people will feel too sorry for them and it won't be funny. And they're like, so they need, the prizes need to be dog shit. That's like an important part of it. So it's like a really like deliberate conceptual point. And the, the really famous bit about Generation Game is like towards the end of the game the family that's won there's a round where One of them has to sit and watch a conveyor belt of prizes, and then they can win all the prizes that they remember. So uh, the conveyor belt, and it's like always just like a cuddly toy, a six piece fondue set. And there's like, just like going past, and you see them like they're sat behind the conveyor belt and they're like looking directly into the camera. And it's like deeply, again, it feels like someone's come up with it for a sketch about 1970s television, and yet it's completely real.
0: It's incredible. I mean, there really is. I do feel like th- I, the reason I know what I know about Britain in the '70s is just because I've read a couple of books about it. Because it is a subject matter that, like, it's this pivotal moment. Like, it goes from you know, you you have effectively like a post-war consensus to Thatcherism. You know, in the beginning of the decade, you start with like a Tory prime minister who's basically like, we're going to have more funding for the NHS. You know, yeah. to by the end, you have Thatcher who's just like, you know, what if we what like what, what, what if we do Pinochet but in Britain? Like, mm. weird how that works. And it's There is such a change, but also I feel like it's such a foundational thing. And every time you hear British celebrities or British, mm. you know, Canadians, actors, TV people, they always talk about how everything was so bad in the 70s. And I feel like this echoes because so much of what we saw, you know, leading up to the 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 grand defeat we experienced or not grand defeat, the total dog shit fucking defeat we experienced at the end of the election last year the big hark and cry was basically Jeremy Corbyn wants to take Britain back to the 70s and you have to understand that in the boomer imagination that is bad yeah you're gonna have to
1: be guessing cuddly toys off a fucking conveyor belt exactly the best you can hope for is a fondue set mate
0: you might win a speedboat but you'll have nowhere to sail it yeah. And the irony is that Britain was actually pretty good in the 70s. Yeah. Income inequality reached its lowest point post-war in Britain in like 1976.
1: Yeah, like pretty much anyone could get social housing. Like it was like it was a reasonably good time to be British. And if you couldn't get social housing, housing didn't cost that much money. Yeah. I like mean, as a multiplier of average earnings, it was like
0: the big thing was inflation, but the thing about it was is that inflation doesn't really affect people when it, I mean it affects people in terms of prices, mm. but Inflation
1: makes it a great time to get a mortgage.
0: Yeah, exactly. But if you're somebody who has a lot of savings, has a lot of like cash investment, yeah, yeah, yeah. or you're somebody who uh, who you know is 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 profiting off of that, like it's a bad time. Like if you're the person who's buying and selling products, like yeah, things aren't great. But I mean, obviously, inflation caused problems. But I mean, to begin in consideration, people complain about you know mild social democratic policies, potentially like, oh, well, inflation might go up in Britain. Well, inflation basically legally has to stay at 2% or lower in the United Kingdom. In 1978, uh, Jim Callahan, the the labor prime minister, their goal was just keep inflation under 10% to Mm. give you an idea of like how different of a world it was. And what happened was, is there was just a series of industrial actions that led to pay rises, which led to The winner of discontent, and basically, if Labor had just called an election in October of 1978, they probably would have won. We probably they that was right about the time the North Sea oil and gas money started rolling in. We'd probably live in a country closer to Norway. But instead, like, uh, how to describe the British version of I don't know, fucking God, Barry Goldwater won the prime ministership, and we now just live in the consequences of that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, though, what what people have to remember about Thatcher and amongst other things is that, like, I don't think I don't think Thatcher you can really compare with. Barry. I mean, I don't know that much about Barry Goldwater, but I mean, Barry Goldwater was like very much an extremist, whereas like Thatcher wasn't really an extremist. Thatcher was just like an effective right wing leader. And like Thatcher knew exactly how much she could get away with. Like Thatcher, it was like way to the left of the current crop of like. Tory people who are like less maligned than thatcher in the public consciousness because people remember the things that happened on thatcher but like thatcher was like way more pragmatic than like you know your current bunch of tories like thatcher would like would have been horrified by the concept of brexit because thatcher was like a money person right like thatcher cared about the fucking the trade deals and like that and that's why she was so successful because she won the trust and confidence of like a coalition of the british people who were like oh this woman's gonna make us rich where it like as opposed to like your kind of like Goldwater like Trump type people who are kind of like mad like id like they satisfy a certain kind of like rabid right wing desire to own the libs but they don't they they can't have the same longevity because they simply don't they don't like earn trust in the same way as like your kind of like effective right wing psycho.
0: I will say in Thatcher's first premiership, it was widely understood that it was a massive failure. She was considered incredibly right wing. She was her becoming the the, the Tory labor the Tory party leader was uh was considered a huge misstep because Mm. she was so extreme given the politics of the day. Yeah, And uh, Labor under Michael Foote was pulling it like 22 points ahead for a significant amount of time. Two things changed. The Libs formed a splinter party and a bunch of Labor and Peace quit and joined it. And that's never happened again. Thus becoming the Lib Dems and sapping some of Labor's vote. And then the the Falklands War happened. And uh, had had the election happened, had the Falklands War not happened, uh, labor would have massively, def- or also if the scp lp hadn't split, yeah, it it would have been different. But you yeah. know what? You really you have
1: to hand it to Thatcher for reading the room on the Falklands War. It was like the I that that war just fascinates me so much that like the the Argentines thought that the, they kind of had this idea in their heads that they could invade this like little British territory in the middle of nowhere, and that, that and that Thatcher just wouldn't care and like the extent to which she completely was just like yeah just send the fucking fleet just like it like 2 hours later um and it's just one of the most bizarre geopolitical incidents to have ever cuz that was their entire game plan they were just like the british just won't defend it
0: yeah and uh we should do an episode on the on the Falklands war because it is Oh, so much
1: fascinating shit. Yeah, just like it is such a f- real G.I. Joe, like mad, like there's not going to be another war for a while. We'd better have fun with it. Levels of just like mad stuff going on there.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a whole wild story. So that would be I guess yeah. be that our 80s episode, that 80s episode. But, yeah. uh, and of
1: course, it involves the French. It does it um, does.
0: And uh, a, a ship named after an Argentine general that did not meet a happy fate
1: no indeed um as just like a coda to this i will say something else about uh uh bruce forsyth because um bruce forsyth i think is possibly of like british celebrities of that era is the one who has had like the most enduring effect on british culture he's like had proper like elder state i'm not surprised i didn't give him a fucking state funeral like the extent to which that guy had like an almost like 60 year career in show business is mental and like he was famous having all these catchphrases which have sort of endured as, like, so one of his big things was that, because uh, I think this was from the Generation game, he would, because he sort of had this kind of slightly weird, like, kind of cockney voice, and he'd come in and go, good game, good game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and from Price's right had higher or lower, higher or lower. Um, <laughs> but his huge thing was he would come out on stage and he would go, nice to see you, to see you, and then they would shout nice back at him um and i nate i fucking guarantee you if you walked out on stage at any comedy club in the uk as an mc even now with a room full of people who are like under 30 and went out there and went nice to see you to see you they would shout nice back at you even though no one has said that on television in like 30 years
0: that is so fucking weird man
1: yeah this is like fucking deep level like like Bruce Forsyth is a kind of British MK Ultra. Like he is so he is more ingrained in the British psyche than almost any of the actual government propaganda efforts.
0: One thing that I think that many people, not not I mean, a lot of the younger fans might not, but if you've seen the film Trainspotting, the Danny Boyle film from 1996, there's a part in the film in which um, Ewan McGregor's character Mark is uh, going through withdrawal. His parents force him to basically lock up in his room and go through <laughs> heroin withdrawal. And he starts hallucinating wildly. And in one of the scenes, his whole family is on a deeply cursed British game show. Like, and he sees himself. <laughs> and his parents are like on. His parents are always watching these fucking game shows in their flat in Edinburgh. Mm. And uh, he sees like he envisions his parents as contestants on this show. And I feel like as an outsider watching that, like you y- you come away from this sort of benign thing. But if you realize that's making reference to. Those kinds of quiz shows and game shows were are not just still popular, but were incredibly popular at a time, and that they were just—I don't want to say shabby, but like in retrospect, they seem shabby. They seem weird and shabby and unpolished and just generally kind of.
1: Even game shows when I was growing up in the '90s, like we had like Family Fortunes and stuff, but it was hosted by like Keith Chegwin, and like it's a knockout and stuff like that. Just like really, yeah, just like really like low rent. Uh, like, well, like Chris Evans, the guy who went on to eventually host the like weird soy boy version of top gear. Um, he was on a show in the nineties called, uh, 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 TGI Friday. And it was just like dog shit. Like when they had that beef fad in the nineties for having like in Britain anyway, like really like madcap television, uh, where it'd be like, Oh, it's a chat show, but there's all this crazy stuff going on. Um, And so they just, all these people in the 90s became really big celebs off the back of just being, like, simpering morons, but who were, like, really enthusiastic. And, like, that is the whole, like, Chris Evans trajectory. It's just him going, like,
0: hey, hey! You know what we missed out we didn't talk about for Britain in the 70s? What? Benny Hill. Oh, Benny Hill.
1: Well, that kind of started earlier, but... uh... Benny Hill, I believe, not a nonce, surprisingly. <laughs>
0: uh, maybe a sex pest. Maybe we don't a know. sex
1: pest, yeah, but I don't I don't believe. An, an entire
0: nonce. show about him being a sex pest? Yeah. Could he be a sex pest in real life? Yeah.
1: We don't know. And he's he was he's also massive in Russia. They fucking love Benny Hill in Russia. I mean, he is long dead, but yeah, the yeah, Benny Hill man. Benny Hill, another person we missed out is Rolf Harris. Uh, a man so australian he became british um <laughs> As nonce, one does. var decision uh, nonce very much has gone to jail for noncing um he he had a show where he used to amongst other things where he used to like paint paintings and then went, they were like really bad and would then like turn to the camera and go can you guess what it is yet <laughs> another catchphrase isn't it? he's also credited with inventing a, a musical instrument called the wobble board He was kind of like, he was like known for like playing music, but always something weird like the didgeridoo or whatever. And there's one where he just used to get a sheet of metal and just like wobble it into a microphone. Um, Yeah. Honestly, Britain in the 1970s, we could do 10 episodes on it, but you only get one.
0: Well, the one thing I'm just going to say is Google Watney's Party 7. Look at the size of the can. Look at the hand it's being held in and notice, yes, it's the size of a can of paint from the hardware store. It's got seven pints in it, and you can pour out seven beers for your friends, or you can drink exactly. the whole goddamn thing yourself. You can
1: have exactly seven friends.
0: Exactly. No, no more, no less. So it's not sus. Anyway, this has been Britnology. Milo, thank you again for illuminating yeah. so much of the history and culture of this bizarre island I've chosen to move to for some reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, thank you, Nate, for indulging me. Uh, I would say that it has been nice to see you, to see you. Nice! (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Thanks for listening, guys.